As you can see this morning, we're going to talk about Hezekiah. Uh, Remember, all the stories in the Old Testament are for our edification. So we can read these stories, we can read about these people, and we can draw out lessons for ourselves now from these stories. Uh, Let's see. So just some basics. Hezekiah, he was a king of Judah. And he comes to power in 715 BC. And this is um, seven years after the fall of Israel to the Assyrians. So he's the king of Judah. Remember, the kingdom is divided between Israel and Judah. And at this point, Israel has fallen. Um, Samaria takes, or I'm sorry, Assyria takes Samaria and Israel has fallen. And um, Hezekiah rules for 29 years. Now, his story is found in three different accounts in the Bible. These are found in 2 Kings, chapters 19 through 20, 2 Chronicles 29 through 32, and Isaiah 36 through 39. Now, each account is slightly different from the others and includes some details that others leave out. And um, I like this about Hezekiah's story because you can harmonize the three accounts and actually get a really nice, round, detailed picture of Hezekiah's life and of his kingship. There's three major parts in each one of these accounts, being the restoration of temple worship in Jerusalem, the deliverance of Jerusalem from Assyria, and Hezekiah's illness and his pride. Just to break down what each one covers for you a little further, 2 Kings focuses mainly on um, the conflict with Assyria, and it's followed by an account of Hezekiah's illness and the envoys from Babylon. 2 Chronicles is the most different one, and it is focused on the cleansing of the temple and the restoration of temple worship and observing the Passover like it hadn't been done in a long time, the reinstituting of all of God's prescribed ways for the people to worship. And all of that is followed by a more abbreviated account of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, his threats and blasphemy against God, and it ends with the story of Hezekiah's pride. Um, The part in Isaiah, because Isaiah was one of the acting prophets during Hezekiah's reign, Um, his account is almost exactly the same account of the Assyrian conflict as what we read in 2 Kings. I mean, they're almost like you could put one on top of the other. Um, It doesn't mention anything about the removal of the high places or the reestablishing of proper worship in the temple. Um, It does include a poem that Hezekiah writes after his recovery from sickness that we don't find anywhere else. So again, that's something that you can look at and harmonize with the rest of them, and it brings context to the other um, stories in the other two accounts. And Isaiah's account ends with the story of the Babylonian envoys and Hezekiah's pride. So speaking of Hezekiah's illness, there's some possible timeline issues. Different scholars say different things, but I'd like to point this out because it's important in what we're going to talk about today. Um, Hezekiah's illness and pride come last in all three accounts in the Bible, but historically it seems very likely that his illness and recovery and his pride actually took place before the Assyrian conflict. 
And one of the points we can look at that will show us that is right here in the scripture. So this is 2 Kings um, chapter 20, verse 6. And this is after Hezekiah has been ill and God tells him that he's going to recover. And this is what God says to him. I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city, Jerusalem, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So you can see here, this is part of an account that is after the Assyrian conflict in the storyline. So, but we see here God saying, I'm going to defend the city against Assyria. So it looks like historically it's putting itself before. I hope that makes sense. It's a little confusing. So this is just one of the things that scholars point to to say, it looks like historically his illness and recovery took place before Assyria came to Jerusalem. And that's going to be important because we're going to consider it from both angles. I think it has value from looking at it in the historical timeline, the chronology, and also has value in looking at it at where it's at in the narrative design of the account of Hezekiah. So we'll look at it from both angles. A little more background. Hezekiah is a good king. He's what the Bible calls good. Um, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all his father David had done. Um, He removed the high places. This was a big deal because a lot of the good kings, for whatever reason, didn't make it around to doing this. So the high places were quite literally just high places, mountains and hilltops, and they were places where people went to worship. Now, God's people would sometimes go to these places to offer worship to Yahweh, the true God, but it was unauthorized because remember, God had given them the prescription for how they were to worship him in the temple. So when they did that on these high places, it was unauthorized worship. And God's people also used the high places to worship pagan idols, as well as other foreigners would use high places to worship idols. So Hezekiah comes and he removes all of these high places. And um, if you remember the bronze serpent from the story in Numbers 21, so the Israelites are in the wilderness and they are sinning against God like they do. And the snakes come and they start to bite, bite them and they're dying. And God tells Moses to fashion a, a serpent out of bronze and to attach it to a pole and to lift it up. And when the people look on the lifted up serpent, they don't die. They're healed and um, they don't pass away. And this is a type and a shadow of Jesus. And at this point in Hezekiah's time, the bronze serpent itself has become an idol. So the people are worshiping this thing that was supposed to point forward to Jesus. That's pretty sad, right? And so Hezekiah gets rid of that. He destroys that idol as well. Second Chronicles says that in the first year of his reign, in the first month, Hezekiah opened the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. So he's reinstituting the proper ways to worship in Jerusalem. He reinstates the priesthood. He has the priests consecrate themselves and he reinstitutes the sacrificial system proper. He holds a Passover like it hasn't been done since the days of Solomon And the days of Solomon were about 250 years before Hezekiah's time. So he's like coming back strong after a long 
period of failure. Something really cool that he does in celebrating the Passover after all this time is that he partially at least makes an effort at reuniting the divided kingdoms um, by inviting the exiles that are in Israel that are left over after Assyria sacks the city. There's people left there. And he sends officials to them to invite them to come to the Passover in Jerusalem, to come worship Yahweh like they're supposed to. So in that way, he does this partial reunification of the two kingdoms, which is a really Messiah-like thing to do. It was one of the most important things he did, at least in my opinion. I just I think that's really neat. And uh, let's just do a brief synopsis of these things. This is what the word says as an overall view of Hezekiah. This is 2 Kings 18, 5 through 8. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. So Hezekiah has a lot of really great things going for him. He's doing a lot of amazing things, and he's very Messiah-like. But um, even though he's bringing the nation out of the steady decline it has been in for a quarter century, he is still not the one to come, the prophet to come that we've been hearing about all through the Old Testament. And we will see that soon. So this is the account of Hezekiah's illness. Remember, we're considering it here in the historical timeline as being before the Assyrian conflict. So this story is prefaced by a specific phrase. Right here, in those days. That's important to note. Um, In Hebrew, this phrase can mean any period of time. It's very general. I mean, it can mean like 100 years. It can mean 10 years. It's not specific, which adds to our timeline issues and just goes to show you this can be in different places. Um, So we think that most likely this probably means in in these days means the years of Hezekiah's reign while he was king. Um, historically between the restoration of worship in the temple and the Assyrian invasion. So we'll just go ahead and read this. Second Kings 21 through 6. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people. This is what the Lord, the God of your father, David, says. I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. So first off, you can see here in verse 6, that was our 
timeline verse, but mainly what I want to draw attention to is the underlying portions of verses two and three. Look at the character of this prayer. He's talking about himself. Remember what I've done. Remember how I have walked faithfully. Remember how I've been devoted and I did what was good in your eyes. He's petitioning God according to what he has done, to what he has accomplished. He's saying, I'm good enough. I have earned this from you. You owe it to me because I've been good. And I don't hear a lot of humility in this prayer. It's all based on what he has done. And it says that he wept bitterly. And scholars think that part of this bitterness is that, hey, I deserve this, but I'm being struck down in my youth. And a source of this bitterness also could have been that at this point in Hezekiah's life, he did not have an heir for his throne, which would be a big personal hit for this king to die without an heir to take over the throne. So that's all kinds of reasons for him to weep bitterly. And it's an indicator. These words are an indicator of what's in his heart. Remember what's in your heart comes out your mouth. And we can see here, pride is in the heart of Hezekiah. Pretty soon, we're going to see the actions that prove what is in his heart as much as we hear the words. But still, the Lord is gracious. God's gracious, right? And he's very compassionate. And he still heals Hezekiah. So Hezekiah is healed from his illness, and the Babylonians hear about Hezekiah being sick, and they come and bring him gifts because he's been ill. These envoys from Babylon come, and when they arrive, Hezekiah shows them all of his treasure, all of his wealth, the things in the king's storehouse, all the valuables that he has built up, and he does this because he is a man of pride. And um, it's revealing, again, that thing that we think we see in his words is coming out in what he does. And after he does this, he's confronted by the good old prophet Isaiah. Let's see what he says. So Isaiah says to him in verses 16 through 19, Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? So about 125 years later, Judah does fall to Babylon. And all that wealth, all those valuables that Hezekiah was so proud of, they get carted away. They're taken away along with the people by the Babylonians. And his reaction in verse 19 is just stunning in this underlined portion here. It's like he's just so concerned with himself. You know, we have a revelation here of the selfishness that he's storing up in his heart. And uh, Second Chronicles account of this actually says that in this matter with the envoys from Babylon, that God left Hezekiah to himself in order to test him and to know what was in his heart. So God's testing of Hezekiah works perfectly. And it is revealed, this is what is in the heart of the king. 
He's got a heart full of pride, and he's got a heart full of selfishness. And the word says that wrath comes upon Judah and Jerusalem because of it. Um, But Hezekiah is about to be humbled in the face of a huge national crisis. Before we get to that point in the story, though, I want to draw out a couple things from what we've talked about so far. Many of the things that God does, God has all kinds of plans and purposes in the world that we are just not aware of, right? And um, I like to describe these as zoom in moments and zoom out moments. So our zoom in moments are when God comes close and he fine tunes our hearts. He does something deep inside of us. He adjusts things. And these are the things that God does in you that other people don't know and don't see. They're those private, deep things. And he makes us more suitable vessels for what he wants to pour in when he does that. And it's not just about making us a better tool so that he can accomplish his purposes. It's also because he just loves us. He cares so deeply about each of us, and he meets our personal needs You know, he doesn't just leave us broken where we're at. He comes close and he binds us up and teaches us how to walk. And uh, sometimes we go through whole seasons of that. Like you go through whole seasons where you feel the heat of the refiner's fire. You feel him just sorting out some stuff that you didn't even know is there. And um, if God is working in you, be sure that he wants to work through you. Because how he works in you has implications for how he wants to work through you. Those two are intimately connected. And sometimes God working in us, doing a zoom in moment, um, will overlap with him working through us and our communities. And those times are really intense. We don't always have this nice, private, hidden away time with God for him to sort out deep stuff. Sometimes he's sorting out deep stuff and we're still doing our zoom out stuff. And uh, those are times where we get to learn really special lessons about God's grace and who's carrying who, because it's not us carrying him. Even when he's working through us, it is always him carrying us. And uh, those can be some really intense lessons when those seasons overlap. So as this pertains to Hezekiah, he needs a revival in his heart, right? If he's going to lead the nation of Judah well. So God in his perfect wisdom, his perfect timing, his awesomeness, he zooms in and he exposes Hezekiah's pride and he brings humility. And then he zooms out and uses Hezekiah in this awesome deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrians. I feel that this is also really similar to the experience that David had. It seems like a lot, people often find it inspiring to watch people doing big things, right? To watch people doing big things on the stage, praying for people, and people getting saved and healed, and we're inspired by that, and we should be. But a lot of times it goes a little too far, and people want to do that. But what they're forgetting is that that person had to do some wilderness heart stuff, before they got to that point. Like David, when he is with the armies of Israel and Goliath is taunting them, and he's like, oh, I'm going to go take this guy down. 
And they say, well, aren't you afraid? And he says, no, I'm not afraid because when I was a shepherd in the wilderness, my God delivered me from the paw of the bear and the mouth of the lion. So God had done something when no one else was watching and it had conquered fear in David's heart. And so when it came time for his zoom out purpose to do this national thing, he was ready because God had completed the zoom in. He had made this vessel suitable for what he wanted to do through it. So he is going to do the same thing through Hezekiah, and we go through those processes our entire lives. And wouldn't it be nice if when we have a victory with God that we never had to repeat any of those things again, that we never had to learn those same lessons? But that's just not the way it works, because our lives are not this nice, tidy formula A plus B does not always equal C. Sometimes it equals purple or like something that you just never saw coming. A lot of times we'll go two steps forward and one step back in our lives. But there's something to learn from that. And from Hezekiah's standpoint, when we consider him, just because you restore the temple worship like it hasn't been in a quarter century, and just because you rid the land of idols and lead the people well, it does not mean that you get to coast. It doesn't mean that you're never going to find something ugly in your heart that has to go. You never get to a point where you can stop depending on God. That's just not the way it works. And on the flip side of that, your flaws and your failures, they don't nullify God's grace and they don't nullify his ability to work through you. So what should your response be when you fall, when you find that ugly thing in your heart that you've acted in pride or that you've had a moral failure? What should you do? You humble yourself and you get back up because he loves you too much for you to just continue to lay there and there's too much to do for you to quit. You know, the body needs you. So you're not, his ability to work through you is not limited by the fact that sometimes you mess up. We're going to see that here through Hezekiah. So moving on to the Assyrians um, coming to the city. Second Chronicles 32, 26 says, But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So remember, Assyria had taken Samaria, Israel's capital, in the sixth year of Hezekiah's reign after a three-year siege, which was brutal. Um, they had also taken many other nations and decimated their capitals and carried off their kings and their people. So there's no doubt that Hezekiah understood the threat that was posed by Assyria. <clears throat> I thought about going in a little bit to how bad Assyria was at this time, but like they were horrible, really scary. <clears throat> so he knows how, how this does not look good. So just to set the stage a little bit for you here, the Assyrian armies are camped outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and the king is not there. He's fighting somewhere else. He sends officials from Assyria to the wall of the city, and Hezekiah sends his officials to the wall of the city, and they're going to kind of have a meeting here. They're going to have a discussion, but the people of the city are there at the walls too, 
and they're also listening. So the officials from Judah, they specifically ask the officials from Assyria to speak in Aramaic so that the people of the city won't understand what they're saying. Um, they don't want the people of the city to hear the threats and be downtrodden. But the Assyrian officials continue to speak in Hebrew, the language of the people, so that they can hear these threats because they're trying to encourage them to turn against the king. So we'll look a little bit of what that sounds like. Here in 2 Kings 18, 22 through 25. So this is the Assyrian officials talking in the hearing of all the people. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is he not the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. For how can you repel a single officer among the least of my master's servants when you depend on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? So now, was it apart from the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord himself said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. They're trying to get the people here to question. They're saying, hey, you know how you worshiped Yahweh for years on the high places, and you had done it this way for generations. And then here comes this king, and he tells you, you can't do that anymore. You have to come worship in Jerusalem. Maybe that was a mistake, because now this is happening, and you're not going to get away. Maybe you should have kept doing it the way that you always knew, because now God's mad at you, and he is definitely not going to deliver you. And you don't even have riders to put on horses if we were to give you the horses. You are that pathetic. You don't stand a chance. And as a matter of fact, if that's not enough, it was your God that told us to come against this city and destroy it. So they're, they're trying to wage this psychological warfare. It's dirty pool. So Second uh, Kings 18.31.33 continues this part of the story. This is still the Assyrian officials talking here. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. So the psychological warfare continues. He's trying to make it sound preferable to abandon God, to turn against the king, to save their skins. Because remember, all the people can hear this. And if you recognize this link right here, that you may live and not die. Does that sound familiar from another story that we've heard? You will not surely die. It sounds like the serpent in the garden when he's talking to Eve and trying to get her to question God. And this link here serves to show us this, these officials are trying to get these people to trust their own thinking of what is good. They're trying to get each person to go his own way so they can bring division, which is one of the main tools of the enemy in any situation is divide. And people are easier to take down if he can divide them. 
And it also reminds me a lot of what Satan said in the temptation of Jesus. He's like, hey, come out to me. I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the earth if you'll just worship me. And the king here is saying, hey, I have so many things to offer you. Just come out to me. Come trust and worship me. So upload all of that content and recognize this is bad. This is all lies and schemes of the enemy. So not a great situation. Hezekiah has already tried to bribe Sennacherib to go away. And he doesn't have the strength, the physical strength that he needs to fight back. When he hears about all of these threats, he says, this is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. He's going to pray. Um, and we'll read his new prayer. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Does that sound like a totally different prayer? from the one that we heard before when he was ill. He's not, he's not saying, save me because I'm good enough and because I've done all the right things. He's throwing himself at the mercy of God and he's saying, God, for the sake of your great name, you alone are the true and living God. And the kingdoms of the earth should know that. So please, please deliver us. And God hears this prayer and he delivers Jerusalem. The angel of the Lord strikes down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians that very night. And they go home where Sennacherib is killed, just as God said that he would be through the prophet Isaiah. So all through this story, we can see this thread, this theme that God is deeply compassionate and that he is very faithful to his people. He also really, really values humility in the hearts of his people. And that is something that we have to continuously cultivate because it is so counter to our flesh. So we have to put effort into thinking that through and cultivating it. So I'd like to close by looking at the story of Hezekiah's illness from the perspective of where it is in the biblical narrative, namely at the end of each of the accounts. Uh, Bible stories are not just a verbal playback of security cam footage. So it's not just a retelling of details like these people came against these people and it was this time of day on this date and this person was wearing a white t-shirt and had red hair and that's not the primary concern is just detail, detail, detail. Remember, there, all these stories are filled with meaning. And they're designed in such a way to convey that meaning to us, the reader, for all time. Um, if you remember, a good example of this is King Omri. And he was, in the eyes of 
humans a really awesome king. He did all kinds of things in the city, and he had great riches and wealth. But when the biblical writers give an account of him, they give him this tiny little paragraph, and they just say he was a bad king. He led the people astray. He worshiped idols. And that, the design of that little paragraph is a prophetic pronouncement on him as far as this is how God sees him, regardless of everything else he's done. So that's one design element that points us to the meaning that's in that passage. So considering all of that, why is this at the end of Hezekiah's story, his illness and the narrative? An interesting theory is that it's at the end to remind us, the readers, that after everything Hezekiah has done, all of the good and amazing things he's done, that he still would not be able to fill the hope of Israel. He wouldn't be able to fulfill that hope they had for the one to come. And um, he's not the one to come. Even though he restores all of these awesome holy worship of the one true God, and he stands faithfully in the face of the enemy's harassment, um, he still can't measure up to God's righteous requirement. Remember, the Old Testament defines humanity's problem. It, it shows us what the problem is, and it points us forward to Jesus, um, the one who's going to solve humanity's problem, who has solved humanity's problem. Hezekiah is uh, just like Moses and Joshua. He's building this help-wanted ad. At his best, he exemplifies all these qualities and characteristics of the one to come, of Jesus. And he builds the silhouette of what the Messiah is going to look like. So that when people like Simeon in the New Testament lay eyes on the physical flesh of Jesus, um, they're just overwhelmed because they've been looking at the silhouette their whole lives in the Old Testament, and then they see him right there in the flesh. Hezekiah just builds that picture, but no one brings it home like Jesus does, right? No one can. The work that Jesus did and the upside-down world he created when he was resurrected and then when the Holy Spirit came. Um, At least at some point, Hezekiah really didn't have a heart for God's people. He didn't love them enough to care about them after he was gone. He was just concerned with what would happen in his lifetime. And it was almost like he had the form and the order of kingship All those pieces were in place, but it wasn't filled with God's love. It was filled to a certain extent with pride and with selfishness. And how sad that is that the leader of God's people, the one who's supposed to guide them and protect them and uh, be a representative of God to them, um, would lead them astray, would hold that in his heart and not truly love them. And it's almost like you can see the schemes of the forces of darkness here. It's like they think, if we can just get to the king, if we can corrupt the king's heart, then we can reach God's people. We can corrupt the king to abandon the people and to lead the people astray. And in that way, we can attack God's people. And that is such a pattern all through the Old Testament, is the enemy coming against the leaders of God's people and corrupting them. And uh, things are so different now. We have so much to be thankful for because now God's people, he has put a new spirit within us. We have a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. 
So instead of kings that are supposed to lead the people, but instead they conceal evil selfishness in their hearts, we have people like Paul. People who are imprisoned and they still won't quit. Uh, People who are insulted and mocked, beaten and persecuted, but even unto death, they won't abandon God and they won't abandon his people. No matter what Paul went through, he was always, his heart just bled for the church. He was so deeply concerned for God's people and for their growth and that they know God. That was all that mattered to him. And you couldn't, you couldn't burn him out of that mission. It was just, it was his whole life. He, uh, there's nothing they can do because now with his spirit living in us, we don't abandon God. We don't abandon his people. His presence lives inside of us and it's constantly changing us. And it's constantly, he's constantly giving us counsel. And you can really see how disarmed and defeated the principalities and powers are because of the presence of God living inside of us. And you can see how the church continues to put them on notice all the time of their defeat because it's just unstoppable. It just continues to grow and grow and grow. And the people just continue to look more and more like Jesus. And it is an awesome, awesome thing to be a part of. I just, anytime I think about this, I just, what else can we do but be thankful for the privilege of being a part of the new creation? I mean, it's just, it's unthinkable. Like that we get to do the things that we get to do, that God's spirit dwells inside of us. It's, it's really incredible. And we get to spend our whole lives working that out in all these different situations. So we're very blessed. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you so much for the firm foundation that you've given us to build on, Lord. We thank you for your grace and that you lead us through that you walk us through when we're growing as individuals, when we're confronting things in our own hearts, when we're being perfected in you. We thank you for your tender mercy toward us, Lord. We thank you for the great privilege, Lord, that you will work through us, Lord, in us and through us. It's so awesome that we get to be a part of your kingdom and we get to be a part of your plans and purposes, Lord. And we thank you for that. I ask that you would help us to throw off everything that hinders us from being who we truly are in you, Lord. And we trust you to do that. We trust you with our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.